Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. As for me and my house, I'm glad we forgot to ask, do this last week. I was hoping you'd remember. As for me and my house, absolutely. It, it's our privilege to have friends of ours from Nazarene Theological Seminary with us on campus. Heather Bryant is a student there, also works in the admissions office. How many people have met Heather someplace this evening? Okay, good. Um, she is, actually, she is here with Dr. Bill Selvage. He is a graduate of Olivet Nazarene University, as was someone else a few weeks ago, as is Dr. Lambright, as, is the as are the Graves, and on and on, including yours truly. But we won't talk about that any longer. Um, he has a master's degree from Nazarene Theological Seminary and, uh, and a doctor of missiology from Trinity Evangelical University. He has served as a pastor in the United States. He served as a missionary in Hong Kong for 15 years. Um, he has served at European Nazarene Bible College, Eastern Nazarene College, and now is the professor of intercultural studies at Nazarene Theological Seminary. Uh, he said not to tell you all that, but you needed to know. Uh, most of all, he is truly our brother in Christ, and, and we're glad you've made the trip from Kansas City. Thanks for being here. So we're going to focus on his, the place that is his heart. We're going we're to talk and sing and consider about what it means to uh, speak to the nations. We've only been here a couple of hours, but already we just feel like you have welcomed us so with such open arms. It's a joy to be here. It's my first time to officially be at NBC. I've been on campus a time or two before, but I look forward so much to being with you tonight uh, to share with you about NTS, certainly, but also to be with you in this chapel service and to think together from God's Word. Uh, you've already men, uh, met Heather, who is... There she is, who is a student at NTS, is on staff there as well, and I consider her a colleague in ministry, and I'm glad to be able to work with her uh, here at NBC. And then uh, I have a special guest with me tonight. My sister Beth is with me. She and her family live here in the Colorado Springs area, and she is on staff right over here at Springs First Church. And so she drove all the way down from the north part of the city to be with you in chapel service tonight. I'm glad to have her with us. The text this evening comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, beginning at verse 35 and going on through chapter 10 with verse 8. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as I read? Matthew 9, beginning at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Most of us are used to some bit of travel. Now we may travel uh, just from the home area where we have been, where we've been living before we've come to NBC. We may, during breaks, during summertime, we may take some rather longer travels. But my guess is we are fairly used to traveling. Now, when you travel, you may be like people who travel light. You just don't want to take any more than you absolutely have to. Are you like people who travel light like this? Like this? Thank you. Uh, just don't need much at all. Or perhaps when you travel, you want to think of every possible contingency, uh, anything that could happen, anything that you would need, and so you travel more like this. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to see which picture you identify with more closely. Here in the passage tonight, we have read about Jesus as he sends out the disciples, probably on their first actual uh, mission as they go out as his disciples. There's a parallel passage to this over in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, where Jesus is also preparing the disciples to go out on their very first mission. Jesus tells them what they can take on the trip. Here in Matthew, in uh, chapter 10, verse 9, it says, Jesus says, Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts, Take no bag, don't take any money. You're going on a trip, but don't take any money. If it was in our day, he'd say, don't even take a credit card. Don't take anything like that. Don't take a bag for the journey, or extra tunic, or sandals, or a staff. And when it says staff, it doesn't mean a, you know, a secretary and a, and a schedule manager. It means a walking stick. For the worker is worth his keep. Don't take any of these things. I wonder why. Perhaps it was not because they wouldn't need these things, but perhaps it was because right from the very beginning, Jesus, as their Lord and Master, they as his disciples, he wanted them to know that the most important thing was following him, was keeping him central in the focus of what they were to do. And so he says, don't worry about these other things. These other things will be taken care of, but you go out and preach the kingdom. Now, here in um, Matthew's Gospel, and also in Mark, in chapter 6, as I mentioned, uh, the authors describe what Jesus was doing. Mark simply says, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. We'd like to know more about that, and thankfully, Matthew tells us more about that. In Matthew's gospel, uh, verse 35, the scripture says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. In both of these Gospels, in Matthew's and in Mark's Gospel, it gives us example after example of what Jesus was doing as he would do, as he would do these things, as he would teach, as he would preach, as he would tell about the kingdom and the people who came to him. There's a phrase here that really catches my attention these days. It's in both Mark's Gospel and here in Matthew. Verse 36 in Matthew, it says, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds. I wonder if that's just um, a detail that the author puts in so that we understand the picture, so we get a real feel for what the big picture is. When he saw the crowds, and then it goes on and describes that. It could be simply description, setting the scene for us, helping us to visualize what was happening. I wonder, though, if perhaps it was more than that. They're setting the scene, yes. But is there significance beyond just seeing what was happening? Why make a note of this? Uh, the, the words were, were few. Space was precious. Why take a note of this? Well, perhaps it was because when he saw the crowds, this was different than the way everybody else treated the crowds. The crowds were crowds. The people were people. But when Jesus came to them, the scripture says to us, the authors, the writers tell us that he saw the crowds. How do you and I see the crowds around us? Well, I know how I see the crowds. Often I see them as simply background to my life. I know the things I had to do, the things I want to get accomplished, the assignments I had to fulfill, the responsibilities that I must take care of, and sometimes people simply get in the way. Driving to school in the morning, I travel on a road that's fairly busy and sometimes it gets a little slow and people are just kind of in my way. I have to admit, I sometimes see them that way. Sometimes I see them as simply background for the scenes of my own life. What's going on in my life, what I want to do, what I need to take care of. Often I see them as simply obstacles to accomplishing what I need to accomplish. As obstacles that keep us from accomplishing God's work even perhaps. Isn't it awful that we would look at the people around us that way? And say, if, if it wasn't just for all these people, I could get done what God wants me to do. The scripture says, yeah, you can laugh there if you want, it's, it's sad, but we sometimes feel that way, don't we? The scripture says that Jesus saw the crowds. For Jesus, the crowds were his life. The crowds were his work. The crowds were his mission. Now, the crowds that Jesus faced here when the writers were speaking probably a lot different than the crowds that we see. Probably not a lot of cultural diversity in the crowd. They all were from that area, most likely. And so Jesus kind of knew what they were like. He, he spoke the same language. They understood each other. But in spite of that, people around him were not seeing the crowds the way he, with a great heart of compassion of God the Heavenly Father, saw the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds. Our crowds today, well, we can pick them out. The crowds of people in the cars that keep us from getting where we need to go. The people who simply are part of the scenery. Have you seen the ad for the cell phone? And I don't remember which cell phone it is, so that's probably good. But the cell phone where there's the, the one that takes care of you and they've got all of their people back behind to show the support. And then they're walking up to another crowd 
and they're telling him about, you know, we've really got a great cell phone service and all. And as they're talking, the guy looks and he notices something odd and he goes over and taps on one of the, the, the people and then all the people are just cardboard people and they all fall down. And then we, of course, realize that the, the cell phone service is not as good as what they claimed it was. Do we sometimes see people that way? Just as kind of like cardboard figures without life, without personality? that are just there as part of the scenery of our everyday lives, I must confess, I'm sure that I do. But I'm asking God to help me to see the people around me. You know, they don't have to be massive crowds. I've seen massive crowds. Uh, Alan uh, mentioned that we had served in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a very crowded place. Lot, six million people in a place only the size of a county here in, in uh, this part of the country. And we would walk out on the streets, and sometimes the streets were so full of people that you you couldn't run down the street because there are just too many people. It was hard even to walk down the street without bumping into people. I've seen crowds like that, but they don't have to be massive crowds for us to actually overlook people that are around us. The clerks who help us at the various stores, fellow students in our classes, the people that we interact with on a daily basis doing business. We speak a word, hello, how are you, fine, how are you, I'm doing fine, have a good day, and that's it. Do we see the crowds? as Jesus saw the crowds. Seeing is different from observing. We can observe the crowds. In fact, in uh, some of our classwork, especially in social sciences, we are taught how to observe people around us, how to try to withhold our own judgment so that we can observe people, we can try to see things from their perspective and understand from, from where they're coming from so we can, we can minister more effectively to them. We have learned to watch, we've learned to observe, and to do it quite effectively. In fact, in some of the sciences, if you can't learn how to observe well without entering into the process, then it's difficult for you to, to really do much of, of use in that kind of science. But that must not be what characterizes us as disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not people who simply walk around with our hands behind our back and look at the people and, and describe them and, and try to understand who they are without ever entering into their lives. The scripture says that when he saw the crowds, he did what? He had compassion on them. He was moved at what he saw. It's a great ability to be able to see people it's a great ability to be able to observe people, but what a greater thing God calls us to, to not only observe them, but to see them, and to know that seeing them gives us the opportunity to know that Jesus cares for them and that God, our Heavenly Father, cares for them through us. Seeing is, seeing is, is seeing. It's more than looking. It's more than noticing. It's actually seeing to the point of getting our attention so that we stop and focus and understand. One of my classes, or several of my classes actually, I ask students to keep journals, cultural journals, in fact, cross-cultural journals, so that as they begin to train themselves to see cross-cultural uh, settings and situations around them. Oh, they can enter into them, certainly if they want to, but the first step is to see the people around them. And so uh, they're required to do a certain number of journal entries and then to turn the journals in and let me see what they've been doing and how they've been um, observing. One student turned her journal in at the end of the semester. This was just in the spring semester this year. And as I began to read, 
uh, it really caught my attention. I asked her for permission if I could share, and she said it'd be all right. <clears throat> this was her cross-cultural journal for March 10th of this year, and I need to kind of set the scene for you. If you're not familiar with Kansas City, the area um, around an avenue called Troost Avenue, it runs north and south and just almost divides uh, the city. Uh, it's, a, it's a major artery, uh, north and south, but it's also an artery that uh, kind of divides the city, kind of tends to be white in one area, black right across the street, and a certain part of that street is an area that is known to be kind of rough. Uh, up around 45th Street, 40th, 35th Street, something like that. Let me read you her journal entry. I decided that I would, her name is Tiffany. She's just, she's just a little thing. She's just slight. Powerful young lady, but not big of stature. I decided that I would take the metro, that's the bus, today for my first time here in KC. As I hopped on the bus at 39th, I entered a whole new world, culture shock. Fear arose in me as the bus driver told me to quickly grab my seat and sit down. As I looked around the bus, I realized that A, I was the only girl, B, I was the only white person, and C, there was a group of what looked like a gang, and a scruffy-looking guy who did not look like he had had anything to eat for a very long time. I remember asking myself, why are you feeling fearful? I think it mostly had to do with the different and new environment that I put myself in. As the bus went further and further from the streets I knew well, and the, she puts gang in parentheses, in quote marks, and the gang remained on, one of the members sat down beside me. What's your name, girl? He said to me. Tiffany, I answered. Where are you from? California, I said. California, what you doing here? School, I answered. That's cool, that's cool. How about you, where are you from, I asked. Missouri. All of us are from Missouri, he responded. As the conversation progressed, my fear subsided. The gang who had insisted on standing on the bus or looking out the window and not paying any attention to me and my and Martin, that was the guy who sat down beside her, to me and Martin's conversation, was now sitting down, leaning forward in their seats. As we talked, I discovered that one of the group's favorite things was to do beatbox. Anybody here know what beatboxing is? Can someone just give us two seconds of what beatboxing is so the rest of us will know? Could you just stand up and give us two or three seconds of beatboxing? Oh no, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> okay. After, after chapel, ask him, and I'm sure he'll give you, it's, it's, it's mouth percussion. And it's, it's really sharp when you, when you hear it. She said, uh, one of the group's favorite things to do was to beatbox. I asked Martin and the other guys if they could show off their talent. And right there on the bus, they broke out. Surprisingly, the persons on the bus were enjoying the beatboxing. The boys loved that. I joined in with my percussion skills, found out that little Tiffany, she could do it too. Um... When we were done beatboxing, we had more opportunity to talk, not as much as I would have liked, for Martin and his friends had to get off. The man on the bus, who was still there, told me that he had never heard those boys talk to anyone that was not a part of their group. He told me that they ride the bus often enough and that he has never seen them come out the way they did. I was in great surprise, for I had just met a group of, and no longer the gang, I had just met a group of awesome young guys 
with much talent and amazing personalities. That they would share themselves with a girl on a bus along for the ride is overwhelming. I just might hop on the bus more often in hopes of seeing them again and in hopes of more encounters with persons outside my box. I love it. And that was Tiffany's journal report. It really caught my attention. And especially when I read this scripture, it helps me to understand what it means to see the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds, and Tiffany, Jesus' disciple, showed me what it means to see the crowds. I remember one day I was sitting at a McDonald's in the Kansas City area, in fact, not far from the seminary. And uh, I'd gone through the drive-thru and gotten a sandwich, and I was sitting over the side, and I was eating it. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone kind of moving along the cars. And I kind of looked, and I saw that it was a, it was a, a woman who was asking for help, asking for money, whatever. And I thought, oh, what should I do? You see, I was really thinking like a disciple. <laughs> it's confession time, folks. You know, should I roll up the window and pretend that I don't see her? I, you know, what should I do? But I left the window down, and she was still about 10 or 12 feet off. And she started saying, now, now it's all right, it's all right, I, I'm, not, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not going to hurt you. And she came up to the car and she said, could you spare some money for, I think it was, she needed something for her children. Thankfully, the master was sitting in the car with her that day and had something to teach one of his would-be disciples. He said, Bill, you're going to treat this woman with respect. And so I did. Now, I think I gave her a little bit of money and, you know, wished her well as she went on her way. But he said, you're going to treat her with respect because no matter what has happened in her life, no matter where she is, no matter what the difficulties in her life, she retains some of the image of God in her. And you're going to treat her with respect. And I think I did. I tried to follow the example of, of my master. Masters are like that, and disciples are supposed to be like that. I saw a craftsman this summer who was laying tile. It was a lady. And she knew exactly what to do. She was quick, and she did it just right, and it worked out right. She had her 16-year-old son with her. He was her disciple. And she would say, okay, I need this piece cut this way. He'd go out, and he'd cut it and bring it back. And she'd say, no, I need a little more this way. He, he looked at her. He washed her hands. He washed her work so he could do exactly what he needed to do as her disciple. Isn't that the way we are? What Jesus does, we're watching. We want to be like him. We want people, when they see the work the, the, for our work for Jesus, they say, oh, I recognize that. That's like the master's work. And that involves the way we look at the people around us. I know that in some cases, in some situations, there are more people than we could ever, ever uh, possibly interact with and with, that we could minister to. But Jesus calls us to see the people around us. I'm so thankful that when I was a little boy, about six years old, a local church... The people of the church and the pastor of that church saw my family. Beth wasn't here yet then. Saw my family and had compassion on us and ministered to us and sent us the magazines, the Herald of Holiness, which was called in that day, the Holiness Today magazine. Took, picked us up and took us to vacation Bible school, which were two weeks long at that time. 
I didn't realize till I was an adult that some of those vacation Bible school teachers had probably given up their two weeks of vacation during the whole year in order to teach us in vacation Bible school. They saw us and they reached out to us and ministered to us until we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior and we became disciples. I don't know who the people are around you. I'm sure that you are doing a wonderful job of seeing them and of thinking, who are they and how could Jesus help them and how could Jesus work through my life to touch them and to reach them? I hope that God will help us to see the crowds around us. May God bless his word to us this evening. Receive the benediction. May he, may he who said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, who said to us, make disciples of all peoples as you go, as you baptize, and as you teach. May we also hear his word that says, look, I am with you always to the very end of the age. May we go in the strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.